Okay, so welcome to uh, our uh, chat today uh, with Dr. Bruce Fercher. He's We're catching up with him. He is the 2023 Lifetime Achievement Award recipient in Diabetes Canada, from Diabetes Canada. He is a professor at the Departments of Surgery and Pathology and Laboratory Medicine at UBC, or otherwise known as University of British Columbia. He's an investigator in the Childhood Diabetes Laboratories at BC Children's Hospital and director of the UBC Center for Molecular Medicines and Therapeutics. He also holds the Irving K. Barber Chair in Diabetes Research and leads the recently created BC Diabetes uh, Research Network. His research focuses on on understanding pancreatic islet function with the goal of developing therapeutic approaches for enhancing beta cell survival and function in diabetes and following transplantation. He has published over 150 papers in the field. He was awarded the Diabetes Canada Young Scientist Award in 2006, a Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal for Diabetes Research and Service in 2012, and the Jerry Brodsky Lecture of the Western Region Islet Study Group for 2022. He served on a number of advisory and editorial boards as chair and member uh, of grant panels for CIHR, NIH, and JDRF, and is currently an associate editor um, at Diabetes. Thank you so much for joining us. Feel free, those who are participating, to drop any uh, questions you may have in the chat as we go along. So thank you so much, um, you know, Bruce. This is really an honor for us to have you talking uh, to us and taking the time out of your busy schedule to do so. Um, well, thank I, you for having me. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I just want to ask, you know, just a little sort of your a little bit about uh, your personal history in islet biology and T1D research you know, kind of high level, um, just sort of walk us through, you know, your approach and and maybe sort of, you know, where you are right now. Sure. Well, my training was in islets from way back um, uh, in the 80s. I actually did my PhD at UBC in Vancouver on um, incretins, um, the gut hormones that regulate islet function and are now um, common um, components of obesity medications. I worked on, on GIP. So that got me interested in, in uh, islets. I was in a gut hormone lab. And so I stayed in islet biology. I went and did a, a postdoc uh, in Seattle with Steve Kahn and, and Dan Port. They were really a type 2 diabetes-focused uh, um, lab. Um, but that's sort of where I cut my teeth, I guess, in, in um, islet biology. And then when I came back to Vancouver in 1997 to work at the Children's Hospital in UBC. Um, Because I was at a children's hospital, there was interest in childhood diabetes, type 1 um, uh, diabetes. Uh, And so I just started to get drawn into it there from a background of islet biology, not really with a background in immunology, but there were a lot of immunologists there to, to work with. And I guess at that time, it was starting to become recognized that beta cells play a role in in type one diabetes. Uh, It was okay to be a beta cell biologist and maybe a bit naive in immunology to work in that field. Um, And so I was just drawn into it. You know, there's this great Canadian research history in type one with Banting and Best and and was surrounded by um, really great scientists in the area. And so was drawn in and also funding, of course, always helps uh, with funders like Diabetes Canada and JDRF to, um, to move your research in that direction. Yeah, well, I mean, sort of as it stands, of the five, would you agree that the four big centers in Canada are UBC, Toronto, Manitoba, and is there one? Is there well, maybe McGill? I'd say 
In, yeah. In, Did you say Alberta? Alberta. Oh, Alberta. Uh, University of Alberta with Patrick McDonald. What am I doing? Yeah, you're going to get yeah. me in trouble here because of all my Canadian colleagues. But uh, but the, uh, you know, uh, both University of Alberta, Pat McDonald, James Shapiro, Greg Corbett, that group, the really pioneers in uh, islet cell therapy, and and University of Calgary with Pierre Santa Maria doing nanomedicine work and and uh, immunology, and um, Toronto and Vancouver, of course, Montreal. So yeah, it's a great community, very collegial community, strong in islet biology growing in in um type 1 diabetes. Yeah, no, it's really it's it really represents um we've had many many scientists from Canada um contributing to the podcast and also to our talks to sort of showcase their work which has been very strong. Um I wanted to sort of see, you know, this is these are some big questions. Um but, you know, why do you feel that the uh, the field of T1D is sort of like at an exciting inflection point? And why why would you encourage trainees to enter the field? Right. Um, well, it's an exciting time in science in general, right, with new technologies, um, regenerative medicine and stem cells having a potentially a huge impact in, in type 1 diabetes with cell therapies, uh, CRISPR uh, technologies, genomic editing, uh, nanomedicines. Uh, so, uh, and big data and bioinformatics um, and repositories are really sort of um, changing the way we do science, you know, things that we sort of thought were impossible or dreamed of years ago, you can do in a few days um, in your lab now. So it's a, a really exciting time. And then to apply these to um, a disease, you know, a complex disease, still a, a real puzzle, uh, type one diabetes. Um, I think there's such great potential uh, there's a lot of resources uh, at our disposal now, um, databases. I, I mentioned these biorepositories like NPOD and HPAP, um, Human Islets. You mentioned University of Alberta. So our, our access to tissue and, and data uh, has never been uh, better. And that's really changing our approach, I think, the way we, uh, we do things. The path to Clinical trial seems faster. You've seen, I mean, it still takes a long time to go from lab to the clinic, but uh, even just in the last few years, the um, cell therapy and immunotherapy trials, um, you know, far more than we used to see when when I uh, started out. Um, and I think, too, for me, one thing that's really changed my approach and inspired me is, is working with uh, people with lived experience with type 1 diabetes, uh, you know, children and their families at Children's Hospital, um, really working with them as partners in the research and with the funders as well. Um, groups like JDRF are much more involved in, in um, moving the research forward sort of as an iterative uh, process. So it's a, it's a really exciting time scientifically, but the possibility that you could you know, do some good and, and, and help people living with this uh, disease is, a, is I think, an, an added uh, thrill and benefit and source of inspiration for me actually working with them. Yeah, that's well put. And it's interesting, um, sort of from our, you know, wide interaction with the scientific and medical community at large, there's so many people who actually have the disease who are scientists in the field and mm -hmm. uh, clinicians in the field. So it's, it really is, um, it's kind of an interesting field. I think we I, all have people, sorry, to interrupt, we, all, we all have people in our labs, working uh, in the labs, doing their PhDs, postdocs, uh, who live with Type one, uh, there's two in in my lab now, and and they bring a very unique perspective for us. You know, we try not to always um, ask them questions, but 
uh, about their disease, but they're, you know, quite willing to talk about it with us. And they provide this sort of bridge between the patient community and the, and the lab, which I think is really valuable. Yeah, I agree. That's really, that's really great. Um, let's, uh, let's sort of shift gears for a minute. I'm going to ask some, you know, more um, scientifically uh, specific questions after this big question, which is what do you envision is the roadmap to understanding the etiology of T1D? Yeah, it's a big question. It's a, it's a complex disease. Um, as you know, as we know, it's um, multiple genes involved, many genes, um, environmental factors that aren't as well understood as we'd like them to be, you know, probably viruses and other aspects of the environment. Um, you know, we still don't have a great handle. We know there's tens of genes, um, you know, 50 or more that confer risks, but we don't fully understand how they confer risk. You know, some are involved in immune function, some are involved in iodine function, many are involved in, in both. Um, and so we need to understand that. Those studies um, <clears throat> take time. You have to dig in in the lab, but you also need big patient populations, you know, particularly for um, understanding the role of environment. These studies um, can take years, right, following uh, populations. Um, uh, but we're making progress. I think, you know, the way to get there, roadmap, if you will, um, is working together, uh, teams, um, consortia, data sharing, um, you know, getting groups together, uh, bringing the, the islet biologists and the immunologists together, the clinicians, um, the trialists, the, the, the bioinformaticians, I think all working together. And you've seen that uh, more and more. And I include the um, people living with type 1 diabetes and with lived experience as partners in this as well. But you're getting people in the room together and, and, and talking it out and doing uh, team science. We really need <clears throat> to bring in different points of view, different expertise, uh, different technologies. Yeah. And I would even offer... I think it's great that some scientists are coming, you know, from very interdisciplinary fields that maybe aren't even focused on type one to bring their expertise to the question. To I question. think that's so true. You know, if you look at how um, technologies and their application to type one diabetes, you know, glucose monitoring and pumps and and now looping, uh, that was really getting the engineers, you know, in the room, right, with uh, with the islet biologists, with the you know, the clinicians and people working on glucose control and people living with the disease. And and look where we are with technologies now, right? It's just been incredible sea change over the last uh, decade or so. Yeah, proof of concept. So if we can have some more communication and collaboration with oncology and perhaps even, you know, um, scientists who, who really were deep into COVID, yeah, well, this is yeah. sorry. This is really important. Like you mentioned, oncologists. It kind of it's not just the technologies, uh, but it's also the ideas from other diseases. You know, one area where we work is um, in in that uh, the regulation of autoimmunity or what triggers autoimmunity and, and sort of the permissive environment uh, for it and how we could alter that. And you can learn a lot from the immune response to cancer biology, right? You know, about checkpoint inhibitors, but also we're very interested in macrophages and their role. And in in tumors, they macrophages are sort of helpful for tumor growth. They take on a pro-regenerative sort of anti-inflammatory type of phenotype, it's thought. 
Um, and so can we harness some of that work from the cancer field to understand what's going on in the island in, in type 1 diabetes? Let's kind of just dive into that idea a little bit. So in the islet, right, you've got these macrophages, kind of, you know, the residential macrophages. What If you could do an thought experiment and sort of just, or hypothesize, you know, that, that everything's, you know, maybe things are, maybe the pancreata is of someone who's on their way to type one, oops, let me just add someone, um, is, is maybe a little bit smaller, you know, from the get-go. And maybe they have an HLA component that predisposes them to this. And maybe they got, you know, uh, CVB, you know, they've got a viral insult <clears throat> and then they, you know, somehow are, are on antibiotics and they are, they've got microbiochains, all these things, you know, a couple of triggers. And then what, when you think about the cell biology there in the islet, what, what do you think is, you know, if you could imagine it, what would it look like? Like alphas, betas, and the macrophage. Do you really think the macrophage is the first initiator of uh, a response to a, to a sickly beta cell? Yeah. Well, I mean, we know that, you know, that innate immune response is the early response, right? To in in inflammation to a wound or, or infection and and so it's important um and you know studies in um the nod mouse model and also coming out of human work from npod we know um that there's um a lot more macrophage i think we've thought it's a, a t-cell mediated disease for for many years, um, and and now recognizing that there's this complex interplay between the uh, islet cells and uh, not just the endocrine cells, but that macrophages play an important role. There, we we study them now a, a fair bit in this context because they're so interesting, right? There's not very many in a in a healthy and a non-diabetic islet. <clears throat> there's maybe five or ten macrophages in an islet out of you know a few hundred or thousand cells, um, uh, but they play really important roles in in talking to uh, beta cells, in islet remodeling and, and regeneration, and then also in the inflammatory response. So, you know, whether uh, studies in mice suggest that they're a very important trigger, amylo and anyways uh, work um, indicates that you can't get type 1 diabetes without that, uh, you know, inflammatory response of macrophages. We don't have such a good handle on it um, in humans, although there is some clinical data, right? The a glumimab uh, trial um, targeted TNF and, you know, worked pretty well. Um, and um, one could argue that, you know, the macrophages might be a primary source of that within the, um, within the islet. So we think they're uh, important. We think they're actually a really good target um, in some of our research in the preclinical models. We're targeting them with nanomedicines because um, phagocytic cells like macrophages and dendritic cells uh, really, you know, they eat up the garbage, right? That's what they do. So they're a fairly good target, really good target of um, of nanomedicines and nanoparticles. So you can deliver drugs to them and then try to, let's say, reduce their inflammatory phenotype or induce them to make regenerative factors in the in the if, islet. So, if you're talking about like, you know, in in each uh, in a human islet or a mouse islet, there are five, you know, macrophage in residence. Can you talk a little bit more? Can you extend that into sort of like the, the M1, M2, yeah. uh, you know, um, axis? Right. So in sort of their 
basal state when they're doing their job as residents in the islet. They're thought to be kind of M1-like, or people don't know what that is. That's the inflammatory side, but sort of quietly M1. They're not really inflammatory. And then in response to um, danger, they can become more pro-inflammatory. And many people, we think too, that this could be an important trigger in, in, in type 1 diabetes. Now, what induces them to become pro-inflammatory and take on that phenotype, we don't know. But, you know, viruses could be, for example, one smoking gun there. Um, that's one possibility. Um, but interestingly, one of the things we found in our research is that um, just in response to beta cells dying, for example, um, when a macrophage goes to eat up that dead or dying beta cell, they don't tend to become more pro-inflammatory. They actually take on, you know, this M2 type phenotype, which is more pro-regenerative. Um, and so we think that may be an important pathway for what we call islet remodeling, making new beta cells, restoring insulin um, secretion, um, which is really interesting, right? Because then it makes you think that if you could um, somehow move between that M1 and M2 space or phenotype, you could tackle, you could approach that therapeutically, right? So that's one of the things we're doing. If you could sort of make them less inflammatory, less M1-like and more pro-regenerative, more M2-like. Yeah. Yeah. I know people are exploring that. What, if we talk um, a little bit about this um, M1, M2 sort of uh, ballet here in terms of um, <clears throat> beta cell senescence, which is a big topic right now. You know, Peter Thompson in, at Manitoba, <clears throat> he came out of Anil Bouchon's lab, UCSF, and they both, um, you know, are working on this hypothesis of the fact that some beta cells become senescent as they, um, you know, undergo insult and basically go offline. Um, has anyone looked <clears throat> at the M1, M2? phenotype uh, in this context? No, not to my knowledge. Interestingly, we do collaborate with Peter. He's an excellent um, young scientist, diabetes researcher. We're really fortunate to um, bring him back to Canada after he trained with Anil in, um, in San Francisco. Um, I think the way, you know, beta cells change um, over the course of type one diabetes, early on in the, in the disease, uh, how they respond under the stresses and become stressed themselves, and and how they may trigger uh, the immune response, and then how they may undergo these different phenotypes. You know, we already know they're heterogeneous. Um, that there are, you know, there's some debate, but there's you know um, some um, hub cells or pace setter cells that are small population. There there are um, that have differences in, in gene expression and and function. And then in type one diabetes, there seems to be this, and in type two for that matter, there seems to be this you know, subpopulation of cells that become uh, senescent. And what we don't really understand is, um, you know, whether those are sort of cells that are resisting death, they're hiding out from um, uh, the immune system. Uh, one thing we know from human studies now is um, from, NPOD and, and, and other work is that, um, you know, type one diabetes in humans is not just a disease of beta cell death. There are residual beta cells around um, that are, um, are, are there. They're potentially a source or a, of, of 
or a target for regeneration, which is which is great. But what we don't fully understand is how those cells avoid the immune attack if they're sort of less differentiated or or, or something or senescent and and somehow they're hiding out from uh, the immune system. So that's a really exciting area of of research in its in its early days. Um, Peter's data from his work with the Neil really suggested that you know targeting those senescent cells could impact um, type 1 diabetes, at least in the NOD mouse. So that's, as I said, still early days, but it's a really exciting area. Yeah, it definitely is. And you just sort of tap, tapped on to some of the work I was going to ask you about your your thoughts on um, sort of the Guy Rudder, again, another Canadian scientist, and um, the Richard Benninger um, work that does indicate there are some pacemaker cells um, in the islet, pacemaker beta mm -hmm. cells. Um, and what are the opportunities sort of there in terms of, you know, um, maintenance or re resurrecting these uh, yeah. these uh, main, uh, these uh, pacemaker cells as they go offline? Yeah, it's, offline? It, yeah, it's interesting. It's great to hear you call Guy a Canadian scientist because I still think of him as a as a British scientist, but he joined us um, in back in Canada in Montreal. Uh, a couple of years ago now, I guess. So it's great to have him in our islet biology community in Canada, which is a really, uh, really strong one. Yeah, the, the you know the pacemaker hub cell um, idea. Uh, I think the data is very strong for it. Um, but what they're really doing, we're just sort of, um, you know, at the beginning of of understanding that. And there's still some debate on their existence and role. But I, I think most of us agree that they're that they're there. I mean, we certainly. Everyone believes that the beta cells are heterogeneous, and there's different, you know, populations and subpopulations of, of of beta cells. So, what's going on in in type one diabetes? Do they play a role? I I don't think we know yet. You know, um, I think now there's tools, at least in the preclinical models in the NOD mouse, to target them, right? To um, delete them, for example. Uh, so, I think we'll start to get there pretty soon with that. I'm sure groups are, are, are working on that. Um, and, you know, one could also imagine if they are this important central cell, right, that's kind of coordinating the um, islet response, they may be an important target in um, diabetes as well, right, if they're still around, um, target for regeneration or improving function. Mm. Yeah, or keeping them alive in the first place so that they yeah. can sort of run the show. <laughs> Um, just, you know, again, if anyone has any questions, please drop them in the chat and we can ask them as we go. Um, I had another question about well, sort of like one more constituent of, I mean, there's, you know, a number of cell types in the eyelid, obviously, but what I just wanted to ask one more question until I shift gear to the immune side of the equation, but with the alpha cells, you know, um, is your lab, you know, kind of digging in there a bit, um, recently or uh, who at UBC is, is kind of following up on that? Um, yeah, there's, there's lots of people working in the alpha cells space now. I think we recognize, you know, from the work of um, group at Duke, for example, um, Dave DeLessio and John Campbell and others, um, the importance of alpha cells in regulating beta cell function. Um, so they do, you know, alpha cells do more than just produce glucagon as a Counter-regulatory hormone to uh, insulin, right? They well, support. yeah. Well, I mean, they're yeah. they're connected by gap junctions, correct? Yeah, right. And not just that sort of you know intracellular communication, but also through 
secretion of hormone probably and maybe release in the paracrine space in between alpha cells and beta cells and act, actually acting on 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 receptors right so if you don't have alpha cells around or they're dysfunctional that's detrimental to beta cell function and we know in type 1 diabetes that you know alpha cell function um uh there's dysfunction right they don't work as well as they they should the cells are not lost um they're around but but they're um uh, dysfunctional so um you know are they um a target yeah i think they are uh, potentially for uh, beta cell um protection and for um uh for therapy for example that's uh hasn't been explored much in type 1 diabetes but certainly in you know type 2 um um there's work in that in that space so uh we're not really i mean it's hard to ignore alpha cells right if you're working in the in the islet we don't study them directly but uh particularly in human islets where you know the alpha cells uh, more so than in the mouse um the alpha cells are sort of scattered throughout the islet and they they seem to talk a lot more with um, with beta cells. So there's really interesting work going on in this in this field. We don't have a lot in Vancouver, but I'd say in, in Alberta, Pat McDonald's been doing some really interesting work with um, at the single cell level in, in human islets with his patch seek work. Um, and um, really now with access to human cells and the technology starting to learn a lot more about what they do. Yeah, well, that's a really interesting horizon to keep an eye on. Mm -hmm. I wanted to... Um, you know, kind of shift gears over to the immune side. Uh, obviously, that's part of the equation. You had a great review in Endocrine Reviews 2021, Volume 42, the beta cell in diabetes integrating biomarkers with functional me measures, which was, you know, Stephen Kahn uh, et al. and you. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of, you know, talked a bit about the broad application of autoreactive T cells as reliable biomarkers, you know, the deep phenotyping of them. And then, you know, it was a great review, but, you know, there was some um, indication there because of limitations, the use of autoreactive T cells as biomarkers for type one is currently limited clinically. What do you think about that? Can yeah, the, the first that was really fun review to write because um, Steve was my um, postdoctoral mentor from, you know, more than 25 years ago. So, um, you know, you're supposed to go on to become an independent scientists but and leave the nest but it was really fun to go back home and uh, write that with them it's a really important field right because we're you know if we're going to prevent type 1 diabetes speaking to type 1 now uh, we need to predict right um, mm -hmm. and we're limited there you know very much based on autoantibodies for the prevention um, trials and so you're asking about uh, other immune cell predictors and I think it's um, early days uh, for that. Although, um, you know, I think where the field is is really going is in the genes that confer risk, genetic risk score. I think that's going to really um, transform prediction. And I think where we work, and I see some colleagues on the call here in the space too, Carmela and others who work on beta cell biomarkers, right? We're believers that um, the the stresses on beta cells induced by the early immune response are detectable um, with you know impairments in beta cell function. We're interested in the pro hormones, pro insulin, and pro IPP, which seem to be disproportionately elevated early in the disease course and maybe even before. Um, but I, it needs to improve, right? Because um, 
you know, preventing disease would be incredibly valuable. We could do this potentially in a um, patient-specific way, a precision health manner, right? If you were able to um, assess from different biomarkers, whether they're genetic risk score or immune biomarkers or beta cell biomarkers, what would be the best approach to prevent in a certain person or or population? Um, yeah, and I think that's where we where we where we need to go. So so that's partly why we wrote that review. Um, you know, it wasn't just focused on type one. We we were very interested in type two diabetes as well, and and particularly uh, how beta cell function changes over the course of both forms of of the disease. But yeah, I think the biomarker field in type one is critical for um, improving prediction, disease prediction. Right, specifically with the advent of these new medications um, that are, you know, T-Zealed and others that are coming, it would be great to kind of get buckets of endotypes yes. and understand yeah. who's best, gonna who's, who will benefit best for certain medications or combinational therapies. Right, we we now have therapies that work, right? Tivlizumab delays disease. Um, uh, in people at risk. And, you know, some of the work is starting to suggest, like Emily Sims and others, are, that uh, that you may be able to um, predict from biomarkers who will respond better to these drugs. And, and now we're getting, um, you know, a much um, wider set of these, of these therapies, right? Um, uh, immune therapies, you probably just saw the I'll get the name wrong to the baricitinib um, yes. trial. Yes, that's, um, that's a just, that's a tongue twister. Yeah, so so you know, there's there's more and more of these therapies. You know, ten years ago, immune therapy was a bit stalled, right? Frankly, and um, some skepticism, and people like Kevin Harold and Carla Greenbaum and others were sticking to it, um, and 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 pushing it forward. Uh, and being, you know, pretty stubborn about it, and look where we are now, right? It's a, it's a, it's a long slog with these clinical trials, right? I would say that um, even the immune therapies now we're using are, you know, it's still a bit of a um, sledgehammer approach, right? They're general immunosuppressants. So I think where we would love to go in this is in an antigen-specific way, so that you can go in with a magic bullet, so that you're not just doing a general suppression of the immune system and, and yeah. some of the risks that go along with that, but going in yeah. and targeting those immune cells, which are, are uh, autoreactive to beta cells specifically. That, yeah. I just say one more thing too, sorry, the, you oh, know, no. what, one, you talked about um, uh, combination therapies and, and, and so now there are a couple of uh, trials targeting beta cells too, right? Which is new as well, right? Verapamil to, for example, to relieve beta cell stress. And I, I think where you'll see more and starting to see it for various reasons, there's been challenges in doing this, but to have combination therapy trials that target both the immune system and the beta cell. Yeah, that would be ideal. Yeah, we had Anath Shalev speak with us, you know, like almost two years ago, and that was a fledgling almost like a fledgling hypothesis, closet hypothesis. And then suddenly it just really burst onto the scene. So that was exciting. I think it, yeah, surprised the field a bit, right? For those of us who work in beta cells, um, we were pleased because we've been trying to make the case that beta cells are important in the pathogenesis. But I think this was, you know, one of the first sort of proofs of principle in humans that, that you know, that you can target the beta cell and can um, have positive outcomes in type one. Yeah, and and not unlike Kevin Harold, she kind of had to really um, 
keep that alive, keep her hypothesis alive, keep bringing it up to get um, traction. So I think, you know, I think the field also would benefit to, I mean, of course, science needs rigor, but to be open to new ideas. Um, and I just wanted to tap into one last thing. Um, you know, the idea of going back into historic data to drive new hypotheses, you know, what's your impression on that? Um, obviously, you know, it seems as if people are now diving back into Teddy and Daisy and pulling out novel hypotheses with new tools and new ways of interpreting these data that have been sort of like, you know, uh, I don't want to say, well, they've been generated and they're kind of hanging there for the picking. Um, so what, what are your thoughts around that? Yeah, I think we're just starting to scratch the surface of that, right? And it speaks to the importance of uh, these repositories of, of of data, right? These uh, big, you know, uh, long-term studies um, following, uh, whether it's screening or, or you know, uh, following um, people living with disease, longitudinal studies, um, and the wealth of data that gets generated, and then and then and also the repositories, right? Like uh, HPAP and and NPOD, and and then how we access that data, right? Because as if we're a beta cell biologist or an immunologist, you know, we likely do not have the expertise to really dive into that data um, in uh, the way we should. And, and, and so this really speaks to partnering with the computational biologists and the bioinformaticians who, um, you know, we can ask the questions maybe, um, but, you know, don't know how to really optimally access that data and 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 use it. So I, I think, yeah, there are, you know, good answers to important questions hiding in big data and in these repositories uh, that you're going to see. They're starting to trickle out now, but you're going to see uh, more and more in the coming years. Yeah. It's a really exciting time. It's really exciting. And again, it, it taps back to what you mentioned earlier, the importance of team science. Yeah, and data sharing and, you know, making the data publicly available, which I think, you know, these NIH and JDRF, the funders are are, are making that um, uh, requirement, making it not just um, available, but accessible because, you know, it should be uh, user-friendly, right? Uh, and, totally. And easy to, to access, right? Yeah, not always easy. I know, you know, we had, we ran a couple of data-driven challenges for early career scientists and they're like, how can we, how can we get access to Teddy? Sort of a long road and application. And it's, you know, I think hopefully that will become more, um, oops, here's one more person. And, um, and it, it'll be facilitated, you know, as people understand the, the power of accessing these data. Yeah. I, I think it also speaks to the importance of engaging the, you know, the community of people with lived experience with diabetes to write the patients, the families, um, you know, they really need to participate, right, in, in um, these trials and screening. And um, uh, the more we have, the, the better the, the data, right? So, so I think, uh, and increasingly um, working with patients as partners, I think, has really started to transform our approach, for sure, um, in our JDRF Center in, in, in uh, Vancouver. You know, there, it's not just talking to them about our discoveries and the research we do there. It's a two-way street learning from them, um, what's important to them, what a cure means to them, right? Um, and, and you know where they would like our research uh, to go, uh, and also teaching us how to better communicate the results of our 
our research. Mm, that's a point well taken. And it's, I think it's, um, I, there's a lot of work being done there though. TrialNet is is working, you know, T1D exchange reaches out to patients beyond type one. They're all patient facing and they're trying to bring more people forward so that they can understand, um, you know, how important it is for them to participate. So I think they're doing a great job. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Well, I mean, you know, I don't want to take too much more of your time because it's been great. I have a couple of questions here in the chat. Um, well, uh, regarding the M2 polarization of macrophages, you mentioned there's evidence from developmental studies that macrophages facilitate remodeling that is important in duct development in the embryo. If the max in the diabetes setting are shown to be more M2, do you think they could only be regenerative if the surrounding environment is receptive to the remodeling? That's from Teresa Mastracci, a great- Yeah, yeah thanks, Teresa. It's, um, it's a good question. I will say, so the short answer is, I don't know that, but the, uh, the short answer is yes, for sure. But I, but I think what we're learning is that, um, you know, the, the phenotype of macrophages, the, where they, whether they're pro-inflammatory or pro-regenerative or something in between, um, depends very much on uh, the environment they're in, so what they're seeing. So if you, for example, deplete macrophages you know, um, in a model system and, and you sort of let them repopulate the islet or, or another tissue, um, they're profoundly influenced by, by what they see. And so uh, uh, you know, during um, remodeling, um, when beta cells are lost. As I said before, I think um, they there's something in the sauce there, something they they see, whether it's a signal from the um, dead and dying cells in the absence of some dangerous signal that um, uh, induces them to become more pro-regenerative. I think we have a lot to learn from um, the developmental side of that, though, because we know that if you um, deplete or delete macrophages from development, the islets don't form normally. So we know that they're critical in development. Not sure if that answered your your questions, but um, we can talk about it sometime. Um, she also is very involved in animal models such as mouse, mm -hmm. mouse and zebrafish. Uh, zebrafish yeah. quite important in that space. So yeah, the developmental um, biologists have really, I think, had profound effect right on the on the field. Um, we wouldn't be where we are with um, stem cell, you know, derived insulin producing cells in transplantation without all the work in developmental biology, for example, and how the pancreas normally develops. Yeah. So, you know, out of the Melton lab and et cetera, that they wanted to sort of emulate that, which they have uh, looking like they're very close. So, um, I would just say, you know, we also got a nice kudos, congratulations, um, Bruce, amazing work and so well-deserved on the award from Carmela Evans-Molina. Well, thank you, Carmela. Yeah, she's another sort of powerhouse from the Indiana team. Um, they are just doing such great work there. They are, and they're a great group to um, collaborate with, and they're a great group to socialize with at uh, meetings, which we do um, sometimes, and sometimes that's where some of the best conversations happen, right, that lead to further collaboration. So we were working together in this um, space around um, residual beta cells and, and pro-hormones as, uh, as biomarkers of, of uh, beta cell function in, in type 1, and it's been really fun and rewarding. Fantastic. Well, we hope to um, keep an eye on papers coming from your laboratory, and certainly we'll feature them 
um, as they come out. Um, and we so appreciate you taking the time right before this busy holiday season or during the busy holiday season to talk with us and sort of talk through some of your ideas and your, you know, where, where your thoughts are in the space. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Monica. I love the sugar science. I think it's great what you're doing, bringing, um, diabetes science um, to everyone, to not just the public, also other scientists. Um, I love listening to um, your podcasts and shows. So really appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much. And we'll be um, posting this recording on our uh, website shortly. So have a great holiday and um, we'll speak to you soon, I hope. Yeah, thanks. We'll see you at a meeting or, or talk to you soon. Happy holidays to you too.